What's up, everybody? It's good to be here with you. Glad to open uh, God's Word together. We're in Romans chapter 12. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 12. And we're going to be reading verses 3 through 8 this morning. I'll give you a second to turn there. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches, that's me, in his teaching, the one who exhorts in their exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Romans chapter 12. Um, I pray that you, uh, by your Spirit, would attend my words and that our minds and hearts would be lifted to you, uh, that we would be renewed in grace and faith this morning, and that through Romans 12 you would continue to knit our community together in love. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I put forward a challenge to y'all to memorize Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Mona is halfway there. (laughs) Y'all need to step up to the plate. That's all I'm saying. Um, When I think about this passage, I think about my relationship to my father-in-law, Joel, and he is present, so I will try to speak speak kindly. I always speak kindly of Joel. Uh, There are no people who are more different than one another than Joel and myself. Uh, We vote different. I'll let you guess how we vote. Uh, When we talk about politics or the things that trigger us culturally, we want to beat our faces against a wall. Uh, If we were to meet in a bar, we would not be at the same table because we would not be at the same bar. (laughs) Um, But here's the thing. I love him. I would do anything for him. He's done a lot for me. And, you know, I just, as he gets older, I just want to be with him every step of the way. Meeting one of his, every one of his needs. He's my friend. He's my brother. How did that happen? Well, it started in that we both loved the same person, Katie. So it was, there was a commitment 
based upon a shared person that we love. And that shared person that we love wanted us to get along, so we decided we better do that. And then out of that place of shared commitment and love, uh, he wore me down through acts of service. To know Joel is to know a servant, and he has served my socks off, edging the yard, jumping my car, mulching the flower beds, watching the kids, paying for dinners, and a whole bunch of other stuff when Kate and I were younger. Going to kids' games, power washing the house. In a world of flakiness, where flakiness reigns, my father-in-law shows up. And he wore me down <laughs> and won me over with practical love. And more truthfully, that, that those practical acts of love pushed all of these other things that we disagree about to the margins. It made me realize that those things aren't who he is. They're not even close to the center of his humanity or his heart. And so we shared much more in common. um, And in that commonality, uh, a practical love grew into a genuine affection for one another. Paul's looking at the church at Rome and saying, y'all are kind of like that. You need to remember that you love a common person. That's what brought you together in the first place. Your love for Jesus. You share a common purpose in Him. And in Him, your differences are not a liability. (laughs) They are an asset. And they are to be used to, to practically love one another so that your shared commitments can turn into genuine affection through mutual service. That's where we're going. That's what I think Paul wants to say to these Romans today. He begins by stating the problem, and then he moves to the solution. So let's just start in verse chapter, th- or in uh, chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. So there's your problem. And the problem is pride. The Greek is to be high-minded. Scott McKnight, the scholar, translates the Greek here to be super-minded. To be so sure that you're right about something. And that kind of prideful, high-minded, super-minded thinking plays itself out in 1,000 different ways in our lives. But in the church in Rome, it was playing out in these cultural tensions that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles within the church. The Gentiles had one day, one way of doing life and worship and food and politics And they were pretty sure that their way was the right way. The Jews had other ideas about how the church should relate to culture and whether they should eat food sacrificed to idols and what Sundays should look like for a person. Both groups believed that they were better than the other. 
and they had dug their heels in. They had become super-minded, filled with an arrogant confidence. And that arrogance and pride was rotting away their unity and community from the inside out. And the remedy, Paul tells us to this pride, is to begin to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Now what's the opposite of being sober? Class? Being drunk. That's right. Sobriety here is exactly what it sounds like. It was the same same in Rome as it is here. The alternative is drunkenness. Apparently, people can be under the influence of things that aren't alcohol. That we can be drunk on ourselves. Or on a particular ideology. Where it can make us unreasonable. What do people do when they are, quote-unquote, under the influence? They say things they normally wouldn't say. They do things they normally wouldn't do. And haven't we all had the experience over the last three years of watching something on television, a group of people either on the right or the left doing things where we're like, what got into them? That that doesn't seem right. People under the influence of a certain type of thinking. And it's the thinking that Paul cares so much about. Remember last week's test text, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And Paul is saying something very similar here, just in different language. Don't be so super-minded and drunk on pride, but rather let the content of your faith sober up your mind. You see that there. It says, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of, what's the word? Faith that God has assigned. And when he says measure of faith, he's not saying amount of faith. Like some people have a lot more faith and they're the ones who will be sober and everyone else just has to be drunk. The word measure here is the word metron from where we get the word meter, like meter stick. So it is a standard of measurement. So the measure of faith is the standard of faith, not the amount of faith. In other words, our faith, the content of our faith, the words we find in our scriptures, our theology, our doctrine, it's the standard by which we are to assess ourselves. The faith, the biblical truths, the core commitments about the Bible that culminate in the person of Jesus. He said, let your faith sober you up. And so, what is it in particular that Paul is suggesting that the Roman church think about to sober them up? What is the the theological equivalent of a black cup of coffee for a church that has an ideological hangover? Well, for Paul, it's this idea of the body of Christ. So verses 4 and 5. For, because, as in one body we have many members, 
and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The idea that's captured Paul's imagination is this idea of being a body. And he talks about it all the time in his letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. That the body is this metaphor that he, can, he loves when he's thinking about the body of Christ and how it's supposed to work when it's working properly. In the human body, Paul finds this profound metaphor for an entity that is deeply unified and yet is richly and necessarily diverse. Unified, but not uniform. In fact, the the flourishing of the whole depends on each unique member doing their own part, making their contribution. And it's this idea of unity amidst diversity that Paul wants wants to have capture our imagination. And so, just listen again. Listen for the one and the many. For as in one body... We have many members, and the members don't have the same function. So we, though many, are one in Christ. One, many, many, one. That's what Paul wants us to consider. First, he wants us to think about how we're one. And by thinking about our unity, he wants us to think about what we have in common. Twice he says you're one body, but in verse 5 he adds something to it. A special phrase. He says you are one body in Christ. And that's a very important phrase for Paul. It's shorthand for everything that happens to a Christian when they believe in the gospel. He's, He's reminding them of why they're together in the first place. He's reminding them of everything that's happened in Christ's teaching, life, death, or resurrection, their faith, and how they share in all of that together. In Christ. He's, he's asking us to consider when he says one body in Christ, what is the, what ties us together as a community? What do we talk about when we meet as a small group, when we gather after service? Minor civilities, the weather, the Husker game, our career, our children, our aches and pains. None of those things should be excluded from our conversation. We're called to share life together, but in sharing those things... We must remember that the thing that binds us together as Christians is Jesus. Jesus. Lord Jesus. The center of our gravity. What happens when a community tries to be one body in politics? What happens when a church tries to be one body even in community or in neighborhood or in justice? Those things matter, but they don't have the mass to be the center of our community. When you put those things at the center of it, the fellowship can't hold. 
The fact is, is that nothing else is strong enough to hold together the extraordinary (laughs) diversity of people that makes up our and other churches. Men and women, young and old, blue collar, white collar, healthy and ill, fit and flabby, (laughs) different races, different incomes, different levels of education, different personalities. What a motley crew. What holds it all together? Christ. It's in Christ. And he's saying, what are our difference in light of that? You don't, you don't get to be in neighborhood by pursuing the neighborhood. You get to be in neighborhood by pursuing Christ. You don't get to justice by pursuing justice. You get to justice by pursuing Christ. You don't get to a shared mind by pursuing politics. You get it by pursuing Christ. We are in Christ. And I was thinking about... Um, I was thinking about a conversation that I had with Bill Thornton this week. Bill Thornton used to be a pastor in a different part of town, but moved into the neighborhood. At his previous churches, they had arguments that lots of church have about theology and, and culture, all types of stuff. But he said moving into a neighborhood like ours has made life a lot simpler for him. He says that now anyone who loves Jesus is his brother and sister. The enemy is the devil. And the folks you're trying to reach are those who don't know the love of Jesus. It's pretty simple. If you love Jesus, it don't matter. I mean, you're my brother and sister. And the enemy isn't that person. It's the devil. And anybody who doesn't know Jesus, we're trying to reach him. I was, trying, I was thinking about what it means to be a Christian in Afghanistan over the past few weeks. Think about what it means to be a Christian there. And what humbles and strikes me about that is that the Taliban, as they stop folks at checkpoints to see if they're Christian, they're looking for things like, is there a Bible app on their phone? You know what they're not asking? What do you think about vaccinations? Are you a masker? Um, What do you think about critical race theory? What's your eschatology? What's your denial? They don't care. Because they recognize something that's true. That there's a unity amongst all these Christ followers. And they treat them all the same. And what Paul is saying is that you are in Christ. Think about what you share in common. You share the cross in common, for goodness sakes. You share the the resurrection in common, for goodness sakes. You have been forgiven. You've been called out by Him. You are in Him. This is true of you. And this isn't just tolerance. This is choosing by faith to be identified beyond culture with the one through whom we have been saved and forgiven, the one through whom we've been created, the one through whom all life has its purpose and meaning. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's the first thing we're supposed to consider. How we all be the same that way. (laughs) 
But then he wants us to consider how we're all different. We are all unified, but we are not uniform. We are the same in our standing in the gospel, but we are different (laughs) in our various abilities to minister to each other. And so in the text, he says, we have many members, but the members don't all have the same function. One body, different gifts. And it's not just that they're different, it's that they're all needed. And so what's implicit here that we need all this, we need this great diversity is made explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the different parts of the body. And he says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the ear can't say to the gallbladder, nobody wants to be the gallbladder. I don't need you. And the, I don't know, the gallbladder. The finger is not a foot, the eye is not an ear, all the parts are needed. You've heard that all before, but what I want you to get is the nuance of this teaching. It isn't saying that each person has one particular gift and you have to find that and use it so that the body can work properly. Your gift isn't the member of the body. You are. You are the particular member of the body. With everything that you bring to the table, all of your experiences, your joys, your pains, yes, your strengths, and the things that you're good at, of course, but also your weaknesses and your failures. I think about how I've seen people be a gift to others, and more often than not, it's them ministering out of their weakness, out of a place of failure, out of a place of pain, out of, and how the Lord met them in that. And when you you put that all together, you have all these unique experiences and, and gifts and abilities and failures and losses. And what you find is that each Christian person is unique, is unique as a fingerprint, as unique as something else that is unique is unique. And there are, and what that means is that there are some people in this neighborhood that because of Who you are, you are uniquely equipped to reach. There are pains in this room that you are uniquely equipped to hold. Addictions that are being wrestled with that you can come alongside and help bear that weight because of what you have gone through and the addictions you've had and been rescued from. And what's amazing about that idea of course, is that we're all needed. And it's a wonderful thing to think about ourselves, but when we apply it to our neighbor, to the person beside us in the pews, that's when that idea is dynamite. To ponder their strength, their weakness, and how together in a a body we make Christ's love more real to a world. There are people that Joel Ingdahl can reach that I can't. There is a comfort that he can bring that I can't. This is made real to me all the time in the church. Even just this last week, I was sitting in a meeting, and Crystal was in the meeting with me. We were trying to minister to some 
other folks. And I was just so happy she was there with me because of, she was able to ask questions that I would never ask and draw out parts of their heart and bring a comfort that I could never bring. I think about our friend, uh, the staff has a friend that lives in the neighborhood. Sometimes he, he has a home, sometimes he doesn't. And his name, his name is Bob. And over the course of our years being here, Isaac has had interactions with Bob. And I've had interactions with Bob. And, and Jonathan Leach has had interactions with Bob. And Jonathan told me the other day that he played Frisbee with Bob. Bob would never play Frisbee with me. There was something about Jonathan that brought out a playfulness in Bob that led to frisbee throwing. And what I thought is, I think to reach Bob's heart, it's going to take all of us. Each one of us is going to pull out something different until he sees the beauty of Christ. And so he says, man, think about how you're the same and cherish that fact. And then he says, think about how y'all are different and cherish the fact. And the last thing he says is, don't just think, serve and cherish one another. Look at verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in her generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So he says, you have the gifts, use them. And there's a lot that we could say about these this list of gifts here. And the first thing I want to say is that it's not representative. This isn't an exhaustive list. There are gifts of list. Uh, there are lists of gifts elsewhere in the scripture, and they're different. All that to say this is a sampling. Um, in fact, there are seven here, seven gifts. And most scholars believe that's intentional. Because seven in the scriptures is often this number of completeness or wholeness. So the seven representative gifts stand for all the gifts that could be present. But also notice that the gifts here are mostly ordinary. There are, as my Pentecostal brothers and sisters would say, extraordinary manifestations of the Spirit that Paul talks about elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, but they're conspicuously absent here. What's the deal? And it's anybody's guess. Perhaps Paul didn't know what manifestations of the Spirit were present in Rome, so he doesn't mention any of them at all. But for whatever the reason he leaves them absent, this list is ordinary and earthy, and I love it for that fact because it's totally in our reach. There's no escape hatch. There's no excuse for not participating. All of us can do one or all of the things on this list. We can all speak or communicate love. We can all give. We can all show mercy. And thinking about this list, I thought about a quote from Tish Harrison Warren. 
And she's talking about spiritual disciplines, but I think it applies to spiritual gifts as well. She starts out by saying, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. She says, I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole and beautiful in big ways. But what I'm slowly seeing is that you can't get to this revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring, the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith, but it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith. The making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God transformation grows and takes root. And what I think Warren is saying there about spiritual disciplines in the Christian life as a whole should be applied to our community life together. Everybody wants a community, a rich community, a full community, but nobody wants to do the dishes. And yet it's the small things, the quiet, ordinary acts of love, the practical acts of of service and love that form genuine affection, love, and loyalty. It's going to that person and just meeting their practical needs. Your casserole matters, is what I'm saying. Casseroles matter deeply to the community of Christ. Staying up and cleaning after the small group matters. Reaching out to someone on the anniversary of of, of a joy or sorrow matters. Stopping and praying with somebody matters. Edging the yards matter. Later on in, 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 in Romans 12, he's going to say, Don't be haughty, but, he, but associate with the lowly. Which can also be translated, you'll, you'll see the footnote in your, in your Bibles, Don't be haughty, but give yourself to humble tasks. It's hard to argue with practical love. Um, I think about my father-in-law and how he has loved me. I think about Isaac Terwilliger and how he has loved me. Um, Isaac does the lowly stuff around here. And so when there is a bat, which happens more often than you guys want to know, we say, Isaac, there's a bat. I promise you that's not on his job description. I wrote it. But he goes and he gets his Nerf darts and he tries to get that thing. There is, in the, ba- in the, in the basement, there is a toilet that clogs. And on Sunday morning, it often clogs. And I'll go to Isaac and I'll say, bro, service is about to start. But the toilet's clogged. And he'll say, I'm going in. <laughs> and, I, and it's not just like the real bathroom. I've seen him go into the metaphorical bath, clogged bathrooms of people's lives. And say, I'm going in. I'm going to meet the needs that are there. You know, that... Isaac and I are so different from one another. You have no idea. If you knew, you would think, how in the world can they serve on the same staff as a church? I promise you, we are different. 
But I, the love and loyalty that we feel towards one another, the shared sense of purpose, the respect that we have, despite, we haven't, like, we haven't moved to the middle. We, we don't meet eye to eye. We meet heart to heart and we face towards Jesus in Christ, towards mission, doing the hard things. I'm going in together into a broken world. You know, giving expression to the one who, to, who came here not to, to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. The one who washed feet and healed wounds and who died on a cross and said, I'm going in to save those people. And then ascended on high and poured out his spirit so that we could be his hands and feet on earth. Because we're not some random person's body. We're Jesus' body. As much as you may think it was a bad idea, this is what he left the world. We are Christ. In him. For him. Being built up together in love. So having a whole bunch of differences, let's use them to build up Christ and to further his mission. Amen? Let me pray. Jesus, sober us up. Use our faith to sober us up because we've been under the influence of all kinds of worldly things. The world has been trying to conform us into its image, but would you let our minds be transformed? By the, renewal of our, by the renewal of our mind, using the standard of our faith to point us to wonderful truths like the body of Christ and what it means to be in Christ and what it means to see our diversity and our differences, not as a liability but as an asset because it lets us express the wholeness of your heart to a watching world, Lord God. And so I pray that you would... Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, bind us together, knit us together in love. Let us remember what we have in common. And then as we uh, we recognize our differences and the gap that's often there between us, that we would fill that gap with practical love and service until we grow up in Jesus. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Amen.